Hello and hey, good people. Thank you so much for tuning in with me again to Frequency Bay. Um, ah, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, so it is Wednesday, uh, December, December, I think it's the, the 15th or the 16th, around, it's one of those days. Um, but I am going to hop straight into it. Uh, with this segment, I'm going to do, um, basically, I'm just going to get into um, the new audiobook that uh, I'd like to bring on scene. And this particular audiobook is one that I really, really love, always love. And this is like the granddaddy and granddaddy of self-help books. And um, this particular book is uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, and it is... Um, narrated by Maxwell Miltz. Um, it's a pretty good read. It's about 10 hours long, so we probably won't get through the entire audiobook, but, uh, we'll get it, get to about an hour today. Um, so I don't want to waste, waste much time. Let's just go ahead and jump right into it and enjoy. In many ways, psychocybernetics is the original science of self-improvement. I make that statement for three principal reasons. First, Dr. Maltz was the first researcher and author to understand and explain how the self-image, a term he popularized for certain processes within the subconscious mind, has complete control over an individual's ability to achieve, or fail to achieve, any goal. Second, everything written, said, recorded, or taught about self-improvement since Maltz wrote has derived from his work. Try and find any book on success or self-improvement written since 1960, right through to yesterday, that does not include a discussion of self-image and the techniques for improving and managing it, notably including visualization, mental rehearsal, and relaxation. And you'll realize how crucial the work of Maltz still is. The relatively young science of sports psychology, relied on heavily by professional golfers, sports franchises, coaches, and Olympians, owes an enormous debt occasionally acknowledged, the psychocybernetics. Third, unlike philosophical musings about success, psychocybernetics is, in fact, scientific. It provides practical things to do, not just think about, that yield quantifiable results. What is unique about psychocybernetics is that it offers techniques that help make whatever was once difficult easy. In short, whether you set out to lose weight and keep it off, lower your golf score, double your income in selling, become a confident public speaker, write the great American novel, or achieve any other imaginable goal, in order to succeed, you will use psychocybernetics technique, either directly from Dr. Maltz or some other source influenced by his work. By acquiring this technique, you have gone to the first and still the source. It is significant that, with very little publicity or marketing, the original Psycho-Cybernetics book has had such amazing longevity and is now a classic in its field. Today, just as 10, 20, and 30 years ago, sales managers tell recruits, coaches tell athletes, consultants tell clients, get it. 
changed it. Throughout, I have tried to maintain Malta's original voice. Over the years since 1960, Dr. Malt and those who followed him devoted increasing emphasis to translating the principles and concepts of psychocybernetics into actual, practical mental training exercises, and I've included a number of those as well. All things combined, this is the most complete psychocybernetics work ever published. I sincerely believe that you hold in your hands one of the most powerful tools for self-improvement and goal achievement available anywhere, at any time, at any price. It has been my privilege to have a small part in bringing it to you. If you aren't achieving everything you want in life, it is probably because your goals are being ineffectively communicated to or rejected by your self-image, and your servo mechanism is underutilized and uninspired. This statement may initially strike you as psychobabble and gobbledygook, but by the time you listen to this program just once, you will fully understand that this single statement reveals the master key to all personal achievement including whatever improvement in performance and outcomes you desire in any area of life, personal, health, relationships, career, business, or finance. Dr. Maxwell Maltz died in 1975, yet he is the primary author of this program, written in 2001, and he contributed in a very active and lively way. In addition to writing the original Psycho-Cybernetics on which the new edition is based, Dr. Maltz was a remarkably prolific researcher and writer, by the time of his death, he had written over a dozen books and three complete courses of study on different aspects of psychocybernetics, thousands of pages of unpublished counseling session notes, interviews, speeches, and radio broadcasts, and more. All of this material was put into a computer, carefully sorted and organized, so that Dr. Maltz could continue contributing to new works even today. Although Mr. Kennedy has also contributed to this program, to prevent confusion and clutter, you are hearing everything spoken by one voice, Dr. Maltz's. It reads as if Dr. Maltz wrote it today, in its entirety. We are certain he would be proud of this work, and that you will benefit from it enormously. Chapter 1. The Self-Image, Your Key to Living Without Limits. Bruce Barton wrote, Nothing splendid has ever been achieved except by those who dared believe that something inside them was superior to circumstance. A revolution in psychology began in the late 1960s and exploded in the 1970s. When I wrote the first edition of Psycho-Cybernetics in 1960, I was at the forefront of a sweeping change in the fields of psychology, psychiatry, and medicine. New theories and concepts concerning the self began emerging from the work and findings of clinical psychologists, practicing psychiatrists, and even cosmetic or so-called plastic surgeons like myself. New methods growing out of these findings resulted in dramatic changes in personality, in health, and even in basic abilities and talents. Chronic failures became successful. F students changed into straight A pupils with no extra tutoring. Shy, retiring, inhibited personalities became happy and outgoing. At the time, I was quoted in the January 1959 issue of Cosmopolitan magazine, in which T.F. James summarized these results obtained by various psychologists and MDs as follows. Quote, Understanding the psychology of the self can mean the difference between success and failure, love and hate, bitterness and happiness. The discovery of the real self can rescue a crumbling marriage, recreate a faltering career, transform victims of personality failure. On another plane, discovering your real self means the difference between freedom and the compulsions of conformity. Unquote. 
This was barely predictive of everything that has occurred in the four decades that followed. When Psycho-Cybernetics was first published, if you visited a bookstore to obtain a copy, you might have found it nestled on an obscure shelf with only a dozen or so other so-called self-help books. Today, of course, self-help is one of the largest sections in the entire bookstore. Psychologists, psychiatrists, and therapists have proliferated. New specialists have emerged, such as sports psychologists and corporate performance coaches. And the stigma of seeking such help has disappeared to such an extent that in some circles doing so is trendy. Self-help psychology has become so popular, it even has found a place in television and commercials. Once difficult, now easy. I'm gratified that much of this modern explosion of ideas, information, and people to assist you with everything from conquering procrastination to shaving strokes off your golf score appears to be based on psychocybernetics. You might say that my original work was ahead of its time, or you might say that it is aged well. Whatever you conclude, the most important thing for you personally is that the fundamental problem of psychocybernetics has been proven true beyond any doubt of That is, once difficult, now easy. Whatever is now difficult for you, whatever may have prompted your listening to this program, can be transformed from difficult to easy through the use of certain sound psychological concepts, easily understood and mastered mental training techniques, and a few practical steps. Your secret blueprint. I would argue that the most important psychological discovery of modern times is the discovery of the self-image. By understanding your self-image, and by learning to modify it and manage it to suit your purposes, you gain incredible confidence and power. Whether we realize it or not, each of us carries within us a mental blueprint or picture of ourselves. It may be vague and ill-defined to our conscious gaze. In fact, it may not be consciously recognizable at all. But it is there, complete, down to the last detail. This self-image is our own conception of the sort of person I am. It has been built up from our own beliefs about ourselves. Most of these beliefs about ourselves have unconsciously been formed from our past experiences, our successes and failures, our humiliations, our triumphs, and the way other people have reacted to us especially in early childhood. From all these, we mentally construct a self, or a picture of a self. Once an idea or a belief about ourselves goes into this picture, it becomes true, as far as we personally are concerned. We do not question its validity, but proceed to act upon it just as if it were true. The self-image then controls what you can and cannot accomplish, what is difficult or easy for you, even how others respond to you just as certainly and scientifically as a thermostat controls the temperature in your home. Specifically, all your actions, feelings, behavior, even your abilities, are always consistent with this self-image. Note the word always. In short, you will act like the sort of person you conceive yourself to be. More important, you literally cannot act otherwise, in spite of all your conscious efforts or willpower. This is why trying to achieve something difficult with teeth gritted is a losing battle. Willpower is not the answer. Self-image management is. This the person who has a fat self-image, whose self-image claims to have a sweet tooth, to be unable to resist junk food, who cannot find the time to exercise, will be unable to persuade him no matter what he tries to do consciously in opposition to that self-image. You cannot long outperform or escape your self-image. If you do escape briefly, you'll be snapped back. 
like a rubber band extended between two fingers coming loose from one. The person who perceives himself to be a failure-type person will find some way to fail, in spite of all his good intentions or his willpower, even if opportunity is literally dumped in his lap. The person who conceives himself to be a victim of injustice, one who was meant to suffer, will invariably find circumstances to verify his opinion. You can insert any specific into this, your golf game, sales career, public speaking, weight loss, relationships. The control of your self-image is absolute and perfect. The snapback effect is universal. The self-image is a premise, a base or a foundation upon which your entire personality, your behavior, and even your circumstances are built. As a result, our experiences seem to verify and thereby strengthen our self-images, and either a vicious or a beneficent cycle, as the case may be, is set up. For example, a student who sees himself as an F-type student, or one who is dumb in mathematics, will invariably find that his report card bears him out. He then has proof. In the same manner, the sales professional or an entrepreneur will also find that her actual experiences tend to prove that her self-image is correct. Whatever is difficult for you, whatever frustrations you have in your life, they are likely proving and reinforcing something ingrained in your self-image like a groove in a record. Because of this objective proof, it very seldom occurs to us that our trouble lies in our self-image or our own evaluation of ourselves. Tell the student that he only thinks he cannot master algebra and he'll doubt your sanity. He has tried and tried. And still, his report card tells the story. Tell the sales agent that it's only an idea that she cannot earn more than a certain figure, and she can prove you wrong by her order book. She knows only too well how hard she has tried and failed. Yet, as we shall see, almost miraculous changes have occurred, both in grades of students and the earning capacity of salespeople, once they were prevailed upon to change their self-image. Obviously, it's not enough to say, it's all in your head. In fact, that's insulting. It is more productive to explain that it is based on certain ingrained, possibly hidden patterns of thought that, if altered, will free you to tap more of your potential and experience vastly different results. This brings me to the most important truth about the self-image. It can be changed. Numerous case histories have shown that you are never too young or too old to change your self-image and start to live a new, amazingly different life. Here's another illustration of how the self-image operates. Picture yourself living inside two boxes, one smaller than the other. The bigger box, farthest away from you, represents real or realistic limits. The box within, the smaller one that is tightly confining yourself, represents self-imposed limits. The area between the two boxes is your area or range of underutilized potential. As you discover the means of strengthening and liberating your self-image, you expand the smaller box, bringing it closer to the size of the larger one, permitting greater use of your true potential. Success from the inside out, not the outside in. One of the reasons it seems so difficult for a person to change habits, personality, or a way of life has been that nearly all efforts at change have been directed to the circumference of the self, so to speak, rather than to the center. Numerous patients have said to me something like the following. If you're talking about positive thinking, I've tried that before and it just doesn't work for me. However, a little questioning invariably brings out that these individuals employed positive thinking or attempted to employ it, 
either on particular external circumstances or on some particular habit or character defect. I will get that job. I will be more calm and relaxed in the future. This business venture will turn out right for me, and so on. But they never thought to change their thinking of the self that was to accomplish these things. Jesus warned us about the folly of putting a patch of new material on an old garment or of putting new wine into old bottles. Positive thinking cannot be used effectively as a patch to the same old self-image. In fact, it is literally impossible to really think positively about a particular situation as long as you hold a negative concept of self. Numerous experiments have shown that once the concept of self is changed, other things consistent with the new concept of self are accomplished easily and without strain. A system of ideas. One of the earliest and most convincing experiments along this line was conducted by the late Prescott Leckie, one of the pioneers in self-image psychology. Leckie conceived of the personality as a system of ideas, all of which must be consistent with each other. Ideas that are inconsistent with the system are rejected, not believed, and not acted on. Ideas that seem to be consistent with the system are accepted. At the very center of this system of ideas, the keystone or the base on which all else is built is the individual's self-image or his conception of himself. Leckie was a schoolteacher and had an opportunity to test his theory on thousands of students. He theorized that if a student had trouble learning a certain subject, it could be because, from the student's point of view, it would be inconsistent for him to learn it. Leckie believed, however, that if the student could be induced to change his self-definition, his learning ability should also change. This proved to be the case. One student, who misspelled 55 words out of 100 and flunked so many subjects that he lost credit for a year, made a general average of 91 the next year and became one of the best spellers in school. A girl who was dropped from one college because of poor grades entered Columbia and became a straight-A student. A boy who was told by a testing bureau that he had no aptitude for English won honorable mention the next year for a literary prize. The trouble with these students was not that they were dumb or lacking in basic aptitude. The trouble was an inadequate self-image. I don't have a mathematical mind. I'm just naturally a poor speller. They identified with their mistakes and failures. Instead of saying, I failed that test, which is factual and descriptive, they concluded, I am a failure. Instead of saying, I flunked that subject, they said, I am a flunk out. For those who are interested in learning more of Leckie's work, try to find a copy of his book, Self-Consistency, A Theory of Personality. Leckie also used the same method to cure students of such habits as nail-biting and stuttering. My own files contain case histories just as convincing. The woman who was so afraid of strangers that she seldom ventured out of the house, and who now makes her living as a public speaker. The salesman, who had already prepared a letter of resignation because he just wasn't cut out for selling, and six months later was number one man on a force of 100 salespeople. The minister, who was considering retirement because nerves and the pressure of preparing a sermon every week were getting him down, and who now delivers an average of three outside talks a week in addition to his weekly sermons and doesn't know he has a nerve in his body. Following Dr. Leckie's breakthrough thinking on this subject, born from observation, as well as my own observations and thoughts chronicled in the earlier editions of this book, a mountain of more sophisticated scientific research and anecdotal evidence has led to the acceptance 
of the controlling self-image by most of the academic psychological community. How a plastic surgeon became interested in self-image psychology. My story. Offhand, there would seem to be little or no connection between surgery and psychology. Yet it was the work of the plastic surgeon that first hinted at the existence of the self-image and raised certain questions that led to important psychological knowledge. When I first began the practice of plastic surgery many years ago, I was amazed by the dramatic and sudden changes in character and personality that often resulted when a facial defect was corrected. Changing the physical image in many instances appeared to create an entirely new person. In case after case, the scalpel that I held in my hand became a magic wand that transformed not only patients' appearance, but their whole life. <clears throat> the shy and retiring became bold and courageous. A stupid boy changed into an alert, bright youngster who went on to become an executive with a prominent firm. A salesman who had lost his touch and his faith in himself became a model of self-confidence. And perhaps the most startling of all was the habitual hardened criminal who changed almost overnight from an incorrigible who had never shown any desire to change into a model prisoner who won a parole and went on to assume a responsible role in society. Some 60 years ago, I reported many such case histories in my book, New Faces, New Futures, written more for my peers than the public. Following its publication and similar articles in leading magazines, I was besieged with questions by criminologists, psychologists, sociologists, and psychiatrists. They asked questions that I could not answer, but they did start me on a search. Strangely enough, I learned as much from my failures as from my successes, if not more. It was easy to explain the successes, the boy with the two big ears who had been told that he looked like a taxicab with both doors open had been ridiculed all his life, often cruelly. Association with others meant humiliation and pain. Why shouldn't he avoid social contact? Why shouldn't he become afraid of people and retire into himself? Terribly afraid to express himself in any way, he became known as stupid. When his ears were corrected, it would seem only natural that since the cause of his embarrassment and humiliation had been removed, he should assume a normal role in life, which he did. Or consider the salesman who suffered a facial disfigurement as the result of an automobile accident. Each morning when he shaved, he could see the horrible, disfiguring scar on his cheek and a grotesque twist to his mouth. For the first time in his life, he became painfully self-conscious. He was ashamed of himself and felt that his appearance must be repulsive to others. The scar became an obsession with him. He was different from other people. He began to wonder what others were thinking of him. Soon his self-image was even more mutilated than his face. He began to lose confidence in himself. He became bitter and hostile. Soon, almost all his attention was directed toward himself, and his primary goal became the protection of his ego and the avoidance of situations that might bring humiliation. It is easy to understand how the correction of his facial disfigurement and the restoration of a normal face would overnight change this man's entire attitude and outlook, his feelings about himself, resulting in greater success in his work. The mystery inspired me. If the scalpel was magic, why did some people who acquired new faces go right on wearing their old personality? What about the exceptions, those who didn't change? What about the Duchess, who all her life had been terribly shy and self-conscious because of a tremendous hump in her nose? Although surgery gave her a classic nose and a face that was truly beautiful, she continued to act the part of the ugly duckling, the unwanted sister who could never bring herself to look another human being in the eye. 
If the scalpel itself was magic, why did it not work on the Duchess? Or what about all the others who acquired new faces, but went right on wearing the same old personality? How to explain the reaction of people who insist that the surgery has made no difference whatever in their appearance? Every plastic surgeon has had this experience, and has probably been as baffled by it as I was. No matter how drastic the change in appearance may be, certain patients will insist that, I look just the same as before, you didn't do a thing. And that's one thing about the human mind, is that it is certainly an incredible spectacle. Um, I think one thing about the way that people think is that, is that it's completely predictable and also unpredictable at the same time. So it's its, it's own Pandora's box when you're when you're thinking about someone or you're you're looking at someone's mind. It's 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 definitely incredible. Um, also, one other thing that I wanted to say was that um, I I feel like. Uh, one of the things that this particular chapter highlights is the importance of um, making sure that you are careful with the company that you keep um, and the type of people that you choose to associate yourself with. Um, because, and I mean not in a direct way, certainly, because he hasn't mentioned any of this, but not in a direct way, but definitely in an indirect way. Um, one thing that I noticed personally about, you know, different relationships and things of that nature is that you certainly become the people that you spend the most time with. Um, I, I personally am, am highly selective of the people who I choose to spend time with um, just because I understand, like, how malleable my mind is. And I think that anyone listening, one of the things that they should definitely take from the situation is just the importance of um, keeping your circle small and certainly your inner circle as small as possible uh, when it comes to the things that you're trying to do in life or the way that you're trying to succeed. Uh, those are always important things to keep at the forefront of your mind when you're deciding to, you know, uh, go about, I guess, your daily whatever it is that you do on a daily basis when you go out, um, your, your daily habits, your daily, um, just things that you like to do in general, whether it be, you know, going to your local coffee shop to where you work out at, you know, people that you spend time with, not necessarily people that you, you see in passing. That's not what I mean, but I'm pretty sure you kind of grasp what I'm saying, um, when I'm saying it. So there's that. And then also, um, what are you taking from this 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 book so far? I mean, what does it make you think? What does it make you feel? You know, is the, I feel like the advice that you get from this book is absolutely priceless, which is part of the reason why I decided to stop the other book that I was I was going uh, with um, the last one that I had on my podcast. Um, the Sexual Contract by. Uh, Caroline Peatman, who is also a very, very brilliant feminist and very brilliant woman, um, and that is a, certainly a book that I uh, plan on buying for you know myself and then also my future family when I eventually decide to have one. Um, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> but um, let's let's get back into it. This this is getting good, and 
um, I definitely want to hear more. Friends, even family, may scarcely recognize them. They become enthusiastic over their newly acquired beauty. Yet the patients themselves insist that they can see only slight or no improvement, or in fact deny that any change at all has been made. Comparison of before and after photographs does little good, and may even arouse hostility. By some strange mental alchemy, the patient will rationalize. Of course, I can see that the hump is no longer in my nose, but my nose still looks just the same. Or, the scar may not show anymore, but it's still there. Scars that bring pride instead of shame. Still another clue in search of the elusive self-image is the fact that not all scars or disfigurements bring shame and humiliation. When I was a young medical student in Germany, I saw many a student proudly wearing his saber scar, much as an American might wear the Medal of Honor. The dualists were the elite of college society, and a facial scar was the badge that proved you a member in good standing. To these boys, the acquisition of a horrible scar on the cheek had the same psychological effect as the eradication of the scar from the cheek of my salesman patient. I began to see that a knife itself held no magical powers. It could be used on one person to inflict the scar, and on another to erase a scar with the same psychological results. The Mystery of Imaginary Ugliness To a person handicapped by a genuine congenital defect, or suffering an actual facial disfigurement as a result of an accident, plastic surgery can indeed seemingly perform magic. From such cases, it would be easy to theorize that the cure-all for all neuroses, unhappiness, failure, fear, anxiety, and lack of self-confidence, would be wholesale plastic surgery to remove all bodily defects. However, according to this theory, persons with normal or acceptable faces should be singularly free from all psychological handicaps. They should be cheerful, happy, self-confident, free from anxiety and worry. We know only too well this is not true. Nor can such a theory explain the people who visit the office of cosmetic surgery and demand a face that is secure, celebrity, teen pop star, or the most popular girl in their school. There are the men who believe that their ears are too big or their noses too long. Such imagined ugliness is not at all uncommon. Surveys of everyone from teenagers and college students to mature men and women consistently show high numbers, 70, 80, even 90 percent, dissatisfied in some way with their appearance. If the words normal or average mean anything at all, it is obvious that 90% of our population cannot be abnormal or different or defective in appearance. Yet surveys have shown that approximately the same percentage of our general population finds some reason to be ashamed of their body image. Of course, in some cases, this becomes constructive dissatisfaction that motivates healthy weight loss and exercise. Many other times, though, it either stimulates attempts at weight loss or fitness doomed to failure because of strong self-image-based restrictions or simply cause people profound unhappiness. These people react just as if they suffered an actual disfigurement. They feel the same shame. They develop the same fears and anxiety. Their capacity to really live fully is blocked and choked by the same sort of psychological roadblocks. Their scars, though mental and emotional rather than physical, are just as debilitating. 
Why are the rich and powerful unhappy? Why do the popular, successful, wealthy, beautiful people of Hollywood, athletes awarded mega-million-dollar contracts and set for life, and enormously influential and powerful business or political leaders, engage in amazingly unhappy and self-sabotaging acts of alcohol or drug abuse and addiction, or in all manner of publicly humiliating and destructive behavior? You see it reported every day. They bought the BMW, and they had the $3 million Mill Valley house, and they still wake up in the morning and say, I don't feel good about myself. That's a quote from Dr. Stephen Goldbart, a psychologist treating many dot-com and tech industry millionaires in Silicon Valley for what is characterized as undeserved wealth syndrome. Wealth, success, power, and celebrity are no more guarantees of happiness and peace of mind than surgical improvement of some personal appearance flaw. The self-image, the real secret. Discovery of the self-image explains all the apparent discrepancies we've been discussing. It is the common denominator, the determining factor in all our case histories, the failures as well as the successes. The secret is this. To really live, that is, to find life reasonably satisfying, you must have an adequate and realistic self-image that you can live with. You must find yourself acceptable to you. You must have a wholesome self-esteem. You must have a self that you can trust and believe in. You must have a self that you are not ashamed to be, and one that you can feel free to express creatively, rather than hide or cover up. You must know yourself, both your strengths and your weaknesses, and be honest with yourself concerning both. Your self-image must be a reasonable approximation of you, being neither more nor less than you are. When this self-image is intact and secure, you feel good. When it is threatened, you feel anxious and insecure. When it is adequate, and one that you can be wholesomely proud of, you feel self-confident. You feel free to be yourself and to express yourself. You function at your optimum. When the self-image is an object of shame, you attempt to hide it rather than express it. Creative expression is blocked. You become hostile and hard to get along with. If a scar on the face enhances the self-image, as in the case of the German duelist, self-esteem and self-confidence are increased. If a scar on the face detracts from the self-image, as in the case of the salesman, loss of self-esteem and self-confidence result. When a facial disfigurement is corrected by plastic surgery, dramatic psychologic changes result only if there is a corresponding correction of the mutilated self-image. Sometimes the image of a disfigured self persists even after successful surgery, much the same as the phantom limb may continue to feel pain years after the physical arm or leg has been amputated. I begin a new career. These observations led me into a new career. In 1945 or so, I became definitely convinced that many of the people who consult a plastic surgeon need more than surgery, and that some do not need surgery at all. If I were to treat these people as patients, okay. as a whole person rather than as merely a nose, ear, mouth, arm, or leg, I needed to be in a position to give them something more. I needed to be able to show them how to obtain a psychological, emotional, and spiritual facelift. How to remove emotional scars. So what it sounds like is being highlighted at this very moment and, and within the book is the importance of self-love and self-worth before you decide to do anything to your body as far as cosmetics and or uh, surgery is concerned which is very understandable, very important. 
um, something and things that are incredibly um, overlooked a lot of times uh, is the importance of, you know, liking who you see when you look in the mirror on a regular basis or, um, or even, you know, uh, taking the time to get to know yourself. And um, so two things. The first thing is that we live in a society right now or rather a day and age, rather, um, where a thing that is incredibly highlighted is the importance of self-help. You know, we've got a ton of self-help books that are out there. You know, everyone's saying that they have the answer or whatnot. And um, a lot of the facade of the self-help gurus that are out there, in my opinion, If you don't know exactly what you're looking for, then you won't know what to go find. Um, And a part of that, in my opinion, is knowing where you're starting from, you know, uh, knowing where you're starting from, knowing what you have, knowing what it's called, so you can go out and find the correct type of help. Um, Because nowadays, a lot of people, they... um, want to get self-help or want to get involved in self-help but there's so much there's so many different topics there's so many different ways to go about getting the help and it can become incredibly overwhelming which is understandable because I've I've certainly been there myself uh it can become overwhelming um and I think that if you don't know where you're starting, you won't know how to get the self-help that you need um, in order to grow properly. Because, you know, when you have a plant or you have a garden, uh, there's a lot of different ways that different seeds grow. Not all seeds grow the same. You know, they grow in soil, they grow with light, they grow with, you know, water. Yes, indeed, but at the same time, you know, there are different climates, different times of the year, and things of that nature. So if you if you look at it that way, um, it can become very daunting um, in relationship to how you choose to, you know, go about that quote-unquote healing process. Um, and then the other coin of this is just... Um, I lost it. <laughs> I had it and then it's gone. I had it and then I don't have it. But um yeah, I definitely wanted to make sure that I said that. But let's um let's hop right on back into the the message today. Let's get back into the book. How to channel their attitudes and thoughts as well as modify their physical appearance. This determination launched me on a continuing process of pointed observation documenting my own case histories, lecturing both to peers and to the public, then writing this book, first published in 1960. This book caught the public's imagination in a special way. It was excerpted in popular magazines, including Reader's Digest and Cosmopolitan, purchased by the thousands by corporations for their salespeople and other employees, adopted by top athletes, coaches, and teams, including the Vince Lombardi-coached Green Bay Packers. Its success led quickly to many speaking engagements, seminar tours, radio and television interviews, even my own radio program. Invitations to speak about my discoveries came from churches, colleges, and corporations. 
Ultimately, I also wrote several other books, extensions of this one, including The Magic Power of Self-Image. Late in my life, three decades after its first publication, I was gratified that Psycho-Cybernetics continues to sell tens of thousands of copies each year, almost entirely thanks to word-of-mouth recommendations, and is inspiring new interpretations. With each passing year, as I accumulated more experience teaching the power of self-image, counseling, and monitoring the results people achieved with this information, I became more convinced than ever that what each of us really wants, deep down, is more life. Something I termed aliveness. The experience of living a life unrestricted by self-image-imposed artificial limits. Happiness, success, peace of mind, whatever your own conception of supreme good may be, is experienced, in its essence, as more life. When we experience expansive emotions of happiness, self-confidence, and success, we enjoy more life. And to the degree that we inhibit our abilities, frustrate our God-given talents, and allow ourselves to suffer anxiety, fear, self-condemnation, and self-hate, we literally choke off the life force available to us and turn our back on the gift that our Creator has made. To the degree that we deny the gift of life, we embrace death. Your new program for liberated living. In my opinion, the professions of psychology and psychiatry are often far too pessimistic regarding people and their potential for self-directed change, even greatness. Since psychologists and psychiatrists deal with so-called abnormal people, the literature is almost exclusively taken up with various abnormalities, with some people's tendencies towards self-destruction. Many people, I am afraid, have read so much of this type of viewpoint that they've come to regard such things as hatred, the destructive instinct, guilt, self-condemnation, and all the other negatives as normal human behavior. Average persons feel awfully weak and impotent when they think of the prospect of pitting their puny will against these negative forces in human nature in order to gain health and happiness. If this were a true picture of human nature and the human condition, self-improvement would indeed be a rather futile thing. However, I believe, and the experiences of my many patients have confirmed the fact, that you do not have to do the job alone. There is within each of us a life instinct, which is forever working toward health, happiness, and all that makes for more life for the individual. This life instinct works for you through what I call the creative mechanism, or when used correctly, the automatic success mechanism that is built into each human being. In this program, I will endeavor to give you very practical ideas and instructions for liberating your own self-image, fully activating your own automatic success mechanism. If you will give all this a reasonable chance, I'm confident you too will be pleasantly amazed at all the positive changes you will experience. New Scientific Insights into the Subconscious Mind There is admittedly debate about the actual structural makeup of the human mind. Crammed into your brain are more neurons than there are stars in the Milky Way, hundreds of billions of them, an unimaginable number. Each of these neurons receives input from tens of thousands of the other neurons and sends messages to tens of thousands of others, adding up to over one million billion connections. In his book about the brain, Bright Air, Brilliant Fire, Neuroscientist Gerald Edelman speculated that if you were to attempt counting the links one per second, you might finish 32 million years later. The operation is something roughly akin to your clicking on the you've got mail beeping icon on your computer and finding 10,000 or 20,000 email messages that require sorting, prioritizing, organizing, and responding to just to get everything right 
so that you can accomplish the first simple task of your day, such as tying your shoelaces. You would melt down at the prospect, but your brain handles it in nanoseconds with a plomb. So the second thing that I I wanted to mention that I just remembered um, is that uh, like the easiest way that I can put it is that you have to really understand the language that your trauma is speaking. Um, And what I mean by that is um, different traumas that have happened different ways can't all be treated the same. Uh, So I want to take, for instance, anxiety. You have different levels of anxiety that exist. And the thing about anxiety is that it exists on a spectrum. Um, And the sooner you get to the place where you understand that specific spectrum is when you'll be able to have a better understanding of the way in which you can go about treating it. Okay. And um, it's a lot like having a breed of dog and or cat. You're not going to treat every single cat the same. Even though it is a cat, you wouldn't treat an adult cat the way that you would a a kitten. Um, You wouldn't treat a puppy the same way that you would a a, a full-grown dog. So you know that you have to feed a full-grown dog a specific way, and it's completely different than the way that you would feed and take care of a small puppy. And that is the same way in which you have to look at trauma. Different traumas affect the brain and the body in different ways. And different types of trauma live within the body different kinds of ways. So once you really get to the place where you understand the way in which your body the way in which the trauma that you have uh, experienced lives in your body is when you'll have a better understanding of how to treat it and what to do for it specifically. Um, and I, I think that's that's all I got. That's my analogy. That's, yeah. So let's, let's get back into the book. The brain is roughly three pounds. Yet it contains the equivalent of entire cities full of giant buildings full of computer circuitry. It is surely the most complex and amazing thing we will ever discover. And it is still a frontier, because research keeps uncovering new revelations about how the human mind operates. On top of the mechanical aspects, there are psychological and spiritual matters. The issue of mind as the pathway to the soul, the conscious and subconscious, the Freudian concept of id. The idea of three operating systems rather than two, reptilian, limbic, and cerebral, left brain, right brain, and on and on. My take on all this has been criticized by some as simplistic. It's possible that research continuing long after my departure will eventually demonstrate that I've been partly right and partly wrong, and will produce even better insights into practical self-improvement. If and when that occurs, I'd applaud. But for now... Let me just say that to you, it shouldn't matter much whether some professor of psychology with lots of letters after his name looks down his nose at what we are discussing as oversimplistic. Let's you and I focus on the most important point, what works. And I can assure you 
that what we are discussing here has worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of people and will work for you. By work, I mean empower you to get more of what you want out of life. My exploration of the science of cybernetics convinced me that the so-called subconscious mind is not a mind at all, but a goal-striving servo mechanism consisting of the brain and nervous system, which is used and directed by the mind. The most usable concept is that man does not have two minds, but rather a mind, or consciousness, which operates an automatic goal-striving machine. This automatic goal-striving machine functions in much the same way as electronic servo mechanisms function, but it is much more marvelous, much more complex than any electronic brain, computer, or guided missile ever conceived by man. The creative mechanism within you is impersonal. It will work automatically and impersonally to achieve goals of success and happiness or unhappiness and failure, depending upon the goals you set for it. Present it with success goals, and it functions as a success mechanism. Present it with negative goals, and it operates just as impersonally and just as faithfully as a failure mechanism. Like any other servo mechanism, it must have a clear-cut target, objective, or problem to work upon. In short, the goals you attempt to convey to this mechanism are filtered through the self-image, and if they are inconsistent with the self-image, they are rejected or modified. By discovering how to alter your self-image, you end its conflict with your goal. Then, if you can communicate your goals directly to your creative mechanism, it will do what is necessary for you to achieve them. Like any other servo mechanism, our creative mechanism uses the information and the data that we feed into it, our thoughts, beliefs, interpretations. Through our attitudes and interpretations of situations, we describe the problem to be worked on. If we feed information and data into our creative mechanism to the effect that we ourselves are unworthy, inferior, undeserving, incapable, our negative self-image, this data is processed and acted on as any other data in giving us the answer in the form of objective experience. When someone we know acts, or when we behave in a way that is astoundingly wrong and wonder why, the answer is basically miscommunication with the servo mechanism. The servo mechanism is functioning perfectly, but acting on a severe misunderstanding. Self-image imprinting. This is most controlled by three factors. Authoritative source, intensity, and repetition. What we hear from a source we accept as authoritative, such as the father we see as omnipotent, from whom we desperately seek acceptance as a child, is given far more weight than the same statements if heard from what is to us at the time a less credible source. What we see, hear, or experience with intensity, such as the father yelling it at us in front of others, making us humiliated, has added weight. And what we hear repetitively from authoritative sources has even more weight. Years after this programming has ceased, it may still be governing all sorts of behavior because the servo mechanism continues acting upon it as current. Your program for more liberated living consists in, first of all, learning something about this creative mechanism or automatic guidance system within you. In the process, you will learn how to use it as a success mechanism rather than as a failure mechanism. Second, you will actually program and reprogram or engineer the personality and the life experiences you desire. It is not widely known, but the controversial Dr. Timothy Leary, a 1960s hippie icon, but also a scientist, 
was as fascinated with the link between mechanical cybernetics and the workings of the human mind as I. In an interview in 1992, Leary stated, It is a genetic imperative to explore the brain, because it's there. If you're carrying around in your head 100 trillion mainframe computers, you just have to get in there and learn how to operate them. Unquote. I think it is your personal imperative to invest the time, energy, and study needed to better understand and use your mind power, including your self-image power. He also said, We can only understand our inner workings in terms of the external mechanical or teleological models that we build. Unquote. This program, now in your hands, is exactly that. A path to greater understanding of your own mind based on teleological models such as guided missile and computer technology. The method itself consists in learning, practicing, and experiencing new habits of thinking, imagining, remembering, and acting in order to, one, develop an adequate and realistic self-image, and two, use your creative mechanism to bring success and happiness in achieving particular goals. While the human mind is an endlessly complex creation, and while you could read hundreds of texts by neuroscientists and be no further along in improving your use of your own mind, self-improvement with psychocybernetics can be remarkably simple, and it offers rapid results. If you can remember, worry, or tie your shoe, you can succeed with psychocybernetics. As you will see later, the method to be used consists of creative mental picturing, creatively experiencing through your imagination, and the formation of new automatic reaction patterns by acting out and acting as if. You may already have read or heard quite a bit about such techniques and tried them with mixed or disappointing results. If so, it does not necessarily mean that you used them improperly, nor does it mean that you are somehow unable to use them successfully. It more likely means that you attempted applying the techniques in conflict with your self-image. Once you use them in concert with modifying, managing, and strengthening your self-image, you will see positive results. I often told my patients that if you can remember, worry, or tie your shoe, you will have no trouble applying this method. The things you are called upon to do are simple, but you must practice and experience. Visualizing creative mental picturing is no more difficult than what you do when you remember a scene out of the past or worry about the future. Acting out new action patterns is no more difficult than deciding, than following through on tying your shoes in a new and different manner each morning, instead of continuing to tie them in your old habitual way without thought or decision. All those who have benefited from psychocybernetics. You might be encouraged by a quick list of those who use these methods exactly as I'm going to describe them to you as we proceed through this program. Athletes. Psychocybernetics and athletes have long been linked. In 1967, the newspapers reported that the big thing now with the Green Bay Packers is psychocybernetics. This was the Vince Lombardi era Packers, and Coach Lombardi as well as famous players Jerry Kramer and Bart Starr, all carried their copies of the book with them and shared it with their teammates. A New York Times article from July 1968 reported on Yankee great Mickey Mantle uncovering Jim Booten's copy of Psycho-Cybernetics and finding it full of handwritten margin notes. Jack Nicklaus, Stewart, and many other top golfers have made very specific statements about their reliance on the mental side of golf. In a foreword to the book Mind Over Golf, referring to his victories in the 1989 PGA Championship 
in the 1991 U.S. Open, Payne Stewart wrote, With my old mindset, I don't think I would have been able to prevail in either of those major championships. But with my new mental approach, I was able to raise my game to the highest level when I had to. Unquote. Mind Over Golf, incidentally, is written by Dr. Richard discover rodeo riders, Olympic athletes, football players, and many coaches who rely on psychocybernetic strategies in general, or specifically by name, to succeed. Coaches. In 1997, the Psychocybernetics Foundation received a letter from Linda Tyler Rollins, Assistant Athletic Director for Academic Affairs at the University of North Texas. She wrote that she'd been teaching from psychocybernetics for years and that in a course for incoming scholarship athletes, quote, the vocabulary they become accustomed to during their academic and athletic careers at UNT is based on the concepts presented by Dr. Maltz before these students were born, unquote. A Boston psychologist now coaching pro golfers profiled in Golf Magazine, Dr. Gloria Spitalny, says, By my calculations, the average golfer spends about 86% of their time doing nothing but wrestling with their thoughts and emotions, feeling one way or another about what is taking place feeling exhilaration or anger, struggling to keep focused, worrying about what's happened or what is up ahead, unquote. It only stands to reason that if 86% of the time spent playing the game is dominated by thought and emotion, not physical action, that 86% of the success-failure determination is due to management of thought and emotion, not swing mechanics or putting prowess. The same thing is true in every athletic activity. So more and more coaches are devoting more and more time and energy to mental preparation and psychological motivation. Several top coaches have written their own books about these subjects, notably including Pat Riley and Phil Jackson of the NBA. Brendan Sur, former assistant head coach with Chuck Daly at the Detroit Pistons and the Orlando Magic, is a fan of psychocybernetics and, in a video program about psychocybernetics, explained that he used the principles in suggesting new mental pictures players struggling with different aspects of the game, entrepreneurs and business leaders. Consider Ray Kroc, the milkshake machine salesman who looked at the McDonald Brothers little hamburger stand and envisioned something amazing. Long after McDonald's hamburger shops were everywhere, Mr. Kroc was asked in an interview how he felt about the tendency of competitive fast food restaurant chains to copy every new McDonald's idea, product, or promotion so quickly. He replied, we can invent faster than they can copy. He was making a statement of self-image, an affirmation of confidence, initiative, and power in regard to a set of circumstances that many people would complain about and feel threatened by. Every business visionary and leader of note has a similar bring-it-on approach, which from a psychocybernetic standpoint, I admire. Let me tell you one quick story about a remarkable young business leader by the name of Joe Polish. Joe is a carpet cleaner by trade who discovered certain effective, albeit unorthodox, methods for marketing and promoting such a business, and used that as a springboard to develop a company that teaches and assists other carpet cleaners with their marketing. At last count,